0: I swear to fulfill to the best of my ability and judgment this covenant.
1: I will respect the hard-won scientific gains of those physicians in whose steps I walk and gladly share such knowledge as is mine with those who are to follow. I will apply for the benefit of the sick all measures that are required avoiding those twin traps of overtreatment and therapeutic nihilism.
0: I will remember that there is art to medicine as well as science, and that warmth, sympathy, and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drug. I will not be ashamed to say I know not, nor will I fail to call in my colleagues when the skills of another are needed for a patient's recovery.
1: I will respect the privacy of my patients, for their problems are not disclosed to me that the world may know. Most especially must I tread with care in matters of life and death.
0: If it is given me to save a life, all thanks, but it may also be within my power to take a life.
1: This awesome responsibility must be faced with great humbleness and awareness of my own frailty.
0: Above all, I must not play at God.
1: I will remember that I do not treat a fever chart, a cancerous growth, but a sick human being whose illness may affect the person's family, and economic stability. My responsibility includes these related problems if I am to care adequately for the sick. I will prevent disease whenever I can, for prevention is preferable to cure.
0: I will remember that I remain a member of society with special obligations to all my fellow human beings.
1: Those sound of mind and body, as well as the infirm
0: If I do not violate this oath. May I enjoy life and art. Respected while I live and remembered with affection thereafter. May I always act so as to preserve the finest traditions of my calling.
1: And may I long experience the joy of healing those who seek my help.
0: The pre Year, session number 250. As I'm recording this, it's September 5th, 2017. Hurricane Harvey hit Texas on August 25th. 2017 as a Category 4 hurricane. The conversation that I have with Dr. Jean Roby happened because so many physicians affected by Hurricane Harvey have reached out to her because she is an amazing writer and uses her words to help encourage people and help give them energy and help let them heal. The devastation from Hurricane Harvey will continue for a long time and all of the men and women who are on the ground in and around Houston helping those in need need your help. If you are listening to this and you are in a situation where you can get on a plane, get in a car, and go help, then do it. If you're part of a club like AMSA, Pre-Med AMSA, or Pre-SOMA, and there's a sister club at the University of Houston, reach out to that club, find out what they need, find out what you can do, what you can send, who you can send, and help. Again, as we're recording this, we have another huge hurricane that looks like it's gonna hit Florida as a category four, maybe even stronger hurricane. If you can help, do it. The people on the ground need you. Their energy every day is depleting. And with new energy from you going and helping. They can help more people and so can you. I am scared, the doctor admits. I am scared we will not be enough and help will run out. Now that's from a piece that you wrote about the recent Hurricane Harvey in Texas. Jean, why do you write as a physician?
1: You know, it's really interesting, Ryan, because I have always written but what was what was happening was uh, writing suddenly became so much a part of doctoring. I mean, there was a, a time when I was so stressed out, and um, I stopped writing. And I didn't realize they were connected. But for about two years, I stopped writing. And I realized that I, I really wasn't enjoying doctoring anymore. And then I realized the reason why I wasn't enjoying was I had nothing to write about, which really meant I wasn't getting very close to my patients. And so as soon as I aimed to have something to write about, which meant I was gonna get close to my patients. I just felt more fulfilled about my interactions, my life, my career. So I I write actually um, because I have to. And I long to have to write because that means I'm actually like touching something deeper, something um, as a common thread within, within people. So it's almost like the writing happens. It has to happen. There'll be times when somebody tells me something, and I have to stop everything I'm doing. I have to pull over. I have to immediately write it down. And not just like notes. I have to start and finish it because it just sort of evaporates, and I lose that very kernel that excites me. And it's interesting because when I get that tingly feeling and I write that thing down that has been inspired, it somehow touches somebody else. But anything short of that, I I can tell you immediately it won't go over. Like people won't excite from it. So I I almost am driven to get it when it comes hot, you know, off the off the press. And you get those moments when you're with patients.
0: Most physicians go to work and they go home and they try to forget about their patients. And there's a lot of burnout in this field. But you are actively continuing to think about the patients and and writing about them and and telling these stories. Do you think what you're doing is helping prevent burnout on your end or is there just something intrinsic in you that just, it needs to get it out?
1: I I think that's a really fascinating way to approach a problem because I'm kind of twisted that way. I look for the problem solution within the problem. I go it sideways. And the thing is, is what burns people out is having a job and having uh, something that that must be done. But what if you went to work and was sort of addicted uh, to kind of touching something deeper that you could only access because of the privileges uh, and the privacy of being a doctor. It's not like I take care of patients so I can expose them. It's not. When I go in, I have this idea that I don't know enough about life or myself and if that's true, I'm actually looking for them to tell me about life and myself because they have these other experiences and they have these other perceptions. And it's, it's fascinating to me because since I'm awake and aware and I'm looking for this stuff, on any given day, I'll have thought of something. And then because I'm open and receptive, a patient will come in and affirm it or give me the next Lego brick. And I'm building constantly on these thoughts, and they come back to me again and again. And I think this is how doctoring kind of matures as you practice, because it's not just experience. It's an intuition about how someone's going to do, what someone needs, why they need it, where they are in their journey. And you can almost immediately see in a patient. Where, where they're in their evolution, their personal evolution, because you've seen it a thousand times in a thousand renditions, but it's not quite repetitive. There's something, there's some detail about it that adds a little twist and a little nuance, and it's absolutely fascinating. So I'm, I'm, I'm engaging them like a crazy raccoon, collecting little trinkets, and then when they give me the chills... I just want to share them. Like, I just want other people to just take the shortcut and here, have a piece of this. And it's funny because, you know, there's all this controversy about getting someone's consent if you're going to expose them and and talk about their privacy. I usually do the stories in a very um, composite way or a very generic way uh, so that I can evade the details and stuff. Yet, some of the details matter and I never write a story that's going to, um, push a human being down. I want to elevate humanity and its understanding. And so a lot of these times, even if it's horrible or tragic, uh, the stories, they have something in it that's really honorable and, and victorious. Um, even even if it's like, you know, the most heinous crime or or the most pathetic situation, it's something about it that's got conflict and the resolution always airs on the side of being human. So the stories really... They're not they're not made up. They're not um, embellished. They are purely human, but you have to find a way to word them so people can can access it, because I think a lot of this stuff we feel, but we can't easily speak of very clearly.
0: You talked about burnout being related to looking at this career as a job. How does somebody going through this process, whether they're a pre-men now, a medical student, or maybe they're an attending listening to this, how do we avoid looking at it as a job and trying to rekindle, hopefully, why we went into this as, as a way to serve fellow mankind?
1: So I think doctoring is a calling. And I think in that calling, we hear society ask for leadership. And we hear society ask for people to be thoughtful and intelligent and compassionate and to lead um, when, when no one knows what to do or no one's brave enough to know what to do. So every time I go to work, you know, and I'm not saying I don't get tired and it's not, say- it's not saying that I wouldn't rather, you know, be doing a lot of other quote-unquote fun things, but I really do aim to make a difference to truly, you know, it sounds so corny. I, I aim, aim to save a life. And it's not like I, I go in there thinking I'm going to be the thing. But I am going to be a part of many things that can save a life. And I tell you, I have like a personal motto. And it's, um, you know, there's universal good. And, and evil doesn't dissipate. It gets kind of pushed around. And we know this truth because someone will get turfed or someone will get discharged and readmitted to another hospital, or a problem will get pushed down and ignored and never addressed. And if we are people of valor, we will we will actually seek out that hard thing and try to iron it out and try to start a solution and try to fix a problem. I think in medicine, what we really want to champion, if we were looking for our future colleagues and our future physicians, is people that Don't mind fixing problems. Want to fix problems and be in charge of fixing those problems. So when we look at going to work and seeking out the thing that's going to keep us from burning out, we need to seek the idea that just just one, just one thing or two things. Just try to help. And it may be something, something so simple like not rushing to cut someone's food. And I see that so often like, I'll hear it. Like, I'll be in the hallway and I'll hear other people do this, whether they be a nurse or a tech or a respiratory therapist or a nurse aide. I'll hear them say, do you want me to help you cut your meat? And I think that there is an example of how you just kind of do what you can with what you got. And you just try to take care of the universal uh, needs and don't push, you know, it around. You can walk out that room and that patient would be stuck, you know, not able to eat or gumming a piece of meat and not able to really digest it, or you could just stop for, for 10 seconds and cut the meat. Now, you take that to any level of problem, the harder, the better, and you be that person every day, it, it, it won't make you burn out, because it's not that if you didn't show up, nothing would get done, because hopefully, everyone that shows up is trying to do something. It's the idea that if you are going to participate, that you make your participation worthy of you waking up and going to do it.
0: There are two players in every interaction between a patient and a physician. And the physician may have all of the best intentions, but the patient may feel entitled and may come across to the physician as entitled and drives the physician down a path that he or she wouldn't have gone down before. How do you deal with that side of things if you're trying your best to be the best physician possible?
1: Well, you know, I think if your intentions are noble, okay, that you won't always have noble engagements, but when the math at the end of the day adds up, and it may be months, it may be years, it may be your entire profession, I think the math will add correctly, okay? Like I, I have this other belief uh, that good guys win. And I, it's not that I don't have different patients at different stages of their evolution. I'm the guy they blame. I'm the guy that they want something for. I'm the guy they want to manipulate. And there are plenty of people who operate that, that way. And yes, it's difficult. But you have to draw your lines, know your intentions, and stand firm for principles. You know, So it's not like you, you go there and you're just trying to service them. You're not trying to service them. Sometimes you have to be the bad guy. Sometimes you have to give bad news. Sometimes you have to be unrelenting about what you're asking a patient or person to do. But the thing that I hope to do is to tell them I see you. I see how hard this is for you. I see what you're trying to do and why you think you need that. I see why you're going to need that for a while and how long this is going to take before you get to a point where you can fully do what I'm asking you to do and not be bothered by this other thing. Because truly, I see your evolution. And I think my, my gift, my party trick, is that I can do it faster. I don't need to spend 10 years with them. But even if I couldn't do it quickly, I think the 10 years that you know a patient and we're losing a lot of that continuity of care is supposed to develop that, that relationship, whether it be a friendship or not. But truly just a relationship that says, I, I know you, bub. And I know when you do that, this is, what, this is what happens. And I know what you mean when you say that. And I know if I give you this medicine, you're probably not going to take it. But I want you to think about it. And it's funny, too, because I do have several canned things that I do. And I'll even tell the patients, these are my canned things, like I have to do with these things. And I'll even tell them I do it because I'm hoping that one day, for whatever crazy reason, you're going to just say yes. You're going to just do it. And it didn't, didn't start off that way. It started off that way because I was doing it, you know, because I needed a way to memorize things or I I needed a way to know that I had completed things and I was just doing due diligence. But what happened was one guy who I thought never would change his mind, changed his mind. And, you know, when I asked that guy, why are you changing your mind? And he told me, oh, because of this other thing that happened. I thought, well, not me. Not because of me, but because of this other guy. But I was there to still ask you, and you said yes to me, so fine. Interestingly enough, months later, that other guy that seemed to influence him was my patient at another place. And I said, hey, are you talking about this other guy? Because it turns out I owe you a thanks. Because your influence on him availed me to influence him. And it is this like magical connection that we have with each other. So what I'm saying is, is when we engage patients and they're pushing back, I think it behooves us to try to understand why. Why are you pushing me? Because I care for you. I've dedicated my entire life to trying to care for you. So you have a life and a good one. Why are you pushing back? Because I'll, be, I'll still be here. I'll be here if you don't show up. I'll be here when you show up. I'll be here when you disagree or when you agree not to a point where you can abuse me, I'm not your punching bag, but to a point where I have done my, my service to my profession.
0: One of the things that is, is kind of a, a motto of physicians is that we put others before ourselves. Now, I don't personally agree with that saying, but it's it's this foothold in our profession as a whole. Whether you're a parent at work late at night with your kids going to sleep without saying goodnight to you or a, a parent in the middle of hurricane Harvey who is saying goodbye to his or her family while they stay behind to help patients in the face of tragedy. How is a physician supposed to continue to put others before themselves when it is eating them at the core of who they are and, and, the, the quote that I read before that you wrote, I am scared we will not be enough and help will run out. I read that as help in me will run out. I will be too tired to help you because I, I, there's only so much of me to give.
1: You know, I, I'm, I'm so thankful for your interpretation because I really meant it to be interpreted in so many ways. And and I hoped that the doctor and the non-doctor and the patient and the society at large would hear all those interpretations. So you were spot on. Because I meant there to be multiple ways of hearing this cry for help, okay? My personal belief is that, you know, physicians and not to like, um, not to change the value of priesthood. It's It was always kind of like this idea that we were a part of a priesthood, that we needed nothing that we wanted nothing, that we were going to owe our souls and, and salvation to the Church of Medicine. And I didn't I didn't totally understand how that was possible because we were still human. We were going to have families, we were going to have diseases, um, we were going to have wants. So how were we going to completely marry the Church of Medicine? I think the intention was that we would make ourselves whole, engage the Extreme task of taking on this responsibility and this obligation and this duty and this calling. And then we were going to uh, prepare our families for the very often times when someone is in more need than they are. And that happens a lot. And anyone who is currently becoming a doctor or is currently a doctor knows that we just farm our families to understand that 90% of the time someone else is in need far greater than than what we must be dealing with. Okay. And that's that's true until it's not true. And when it's not true, when when the balances have become tipped and it's dysfunctional or it's unhealthy, or truly your child is sick, your husband is dead, you yourself are suffering, then we've got to back off from this role and responsibility because we no longer are able, both physically and mentally and, and time wise to carry the the extreme burden right but when you engage medicine you're you're sort of accepting a little bit of the unusual extremities right and when we look at quality of life for a physician when they're talking about training them when they're talking about work life balance we're sort of pushing back against the idea that you were supposed to get everything everything of me all my time all my attention all my love All my duties. And even then, you can't push all the way back. We're never going to be 9 to 5. I had a patient this weekend who said, are you going to be here on Monday? It was Labor Day. And I said, yeah. They said, oh, isn't that holiday hours? And I thought, that's like the craziest. It's like, you know, uh, Chick-fil-A closing on Sundays. I thought, it never even dawned on me that we could have, you know, a holiday hour. What's a holiday hour? I said, we just take turns. We take turns pretending... It's a normal day, and you know, I'll take this holiday, they'll take that holiday, but we don't we don't get holidays. We get coverage and and we trade. and that's just the way you know we're able to continue with what human existence is. it's a it's a continuity. There, there's no breakage. It's not like you know, disease and death and suffering decides it's Sunday or Saturday. So I think when society is asking more of us, I think it's right. For us to respond with, um, yes, I'll give you more. But when I need something, I, I want you to, to be able to give that to me. And while I'm giving you so much, I need you to honor me. Because I am doing something that many won't do. I am giving of you and the family around me. Because when I, when I come in and write checks, I write checks against my account and against my children and my husband and my marriage and my extended family. I, I I asked them all. And they have been farmed this way. And I don't I don't know that it's that different than say like military families or or people who serve, you know, like the policemen's um and, and nurses and and paramedics and just people who serve a greater purpose. So I, I think there's gonna be some balance, but I'll tell you what's interesting about doctoring. We're not only servants of society, we are leaders. You know, we're not just saying we're going to be there. We're saying we're going to be there and we're going to lead the entire show. We're going to show up and we're going to say, you do this and you do that and I need this. And here's what the problem is and here's how we're going to fix it. And here's how you're going to help me help you fix this. We are picked to walk into a room and just decide we're going to be the one, the go-to guy. And from there, there can be plenty of other people at the table. But someone's going to have to calm everyone down, organize stuff, figure out, you know, what we need and where we're going to get it, and then sign the paper and take responsibility. And I think a lot of the times we're not given enough credit for the fact that as physicians, that is the social contract. You don't walk in a room and go, hey, where's the post office guy? You know, you walk in the room and go, who's the doctor in charge?
0: With the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey and all of the physicians and first responders and nurses and everybody else that have taken the time to take care of patients, in a week and a half as we're recording this between Hurricane Harvey and and Hurricane Irma, which is barreling down towards Florida, what can physicians and other healthcare workers learn from these disasters to help them e- either as they progress through their training or as, as physicians right now that they are?
1: You know what I, I thought was really fascinating um, about these first responders is how they know to just act. okay, And then how they use what they've been cultivating this whole time their knowledge, their connections, um, their their know-how, how to solve a problem that's multi multifaceted, I saw physicians um, immediately organize a place, a time, a crew, immediately make phone calls to um, pharmacy reps, to pharmacy companies, tell them this is what I see is going to be needed. And to get that, I'm going to also need X and Y and Z. And they just created a, a complete treatment plan for disaster. That's what's absolutely a physician's mode of operation, right? But, but also, I saw them really try to hone in and deal with uh, and prioritize what they were seeing. Like, what are we going to do first? And then what are we going to do? And then what are we going to do? And really try to make long-term plans. Again, very physician-like. You know, I'm going to deal with the acute problem, and then I'm going to try to make up a long-term problem for rehabbing this tragedy. And as physicians in different parts of the area are going to different tragedies, I think um, learning that they start to feel overwhelmed, both emotionally and physically, because they can't justify recharging when there's so much suffering around but also because in this mindset where they're like, okay, I'm going to fix this acute problem. And now I got to make a long-term plan for all these people. I think inside somewhere, something kind of cracks because it's so much all at once and there's no end to it. And they don't have real life solutions. Like physicians were reaching out to me to tell their stories and they were saying, and then I go to do this guy and and he seems okay. So I say, stay there. And then I walk away and then I go do this guy. And then I do, you know, 20 more and I come back and that guy that I did he's okay, but he's covered in urine and you know, he hasn't eaten all day and I, I didn't have time to pay attention to him and he doesn't belong to everyone. So all of a sudden this physician is just dying inside a little bit and-, and I'm sure like the nurses around them and other volunteers are just dying because they just can't do enough. And so when you said I see in that, that sentence I think the help is going to run out mm-hmm. and, and thought it's going to run out in me. It's everything. It's just going to stop coming. So, okay, here we are. We're not in Texas. We're not in Florida. And we're trying to figure out, okay, if I'm not there, what am I going to do? Well, we can send money. We can send aid. We can send help. We can we can do what we can do locally to try to get stuff to where it needs to go. But what we really need to do is is feed that energy that positive energy that lets that responder respond, that validates that responder, that gives that responder um, some, some validation and some encouragement and some support, and then tells tells them to give them some solace. I see you. I can't directly help you or be there, but I can uh, feed into that energy somehow. And and here's the other thing they want to hear. They want to hear that that outreach is not going to end. That people know that what's happening in Harvey, they still can't find people. And it's still wet. If the first day fell 50 inches, there are homes that are still four feet under. That's only you know a few inches less than the maximum because that water didn't go anywhere. So it's not like it all dried up and now we can start rebuilding. And even those homes that have dried up that's sixty that's six months of renovation that that's what's six months they couldn't even be gone from work for ten days, and it's the school year, and it's a holiday coming up in four months there's a There's a million things that are going to happen in their future when their entire present was decimated. Everything was taken from them, and whatever they could garnish really isn't enough to make a day. you know so I think when we look at how are we going to react. In Florida, or continue to care for Harvey or any other tragedy that happens in America, we need to be able to do acute planning. We need to be able to do long term planning. And the society around us needs to feed into energizing and continuing to fund and help that long term planning. I mean, Katrina was a great example of how that took years. And a lot of people had to relocate. And that was difficult too. A a lot of physicians that are on the ground right now tell me that on day two it was already too much and really what was getting them was they were getting short on day two and they knew they knew because they know how to take care of long-term problems that there was going to be a a day 200 and a year two so how were they going to keep going if the rest of society was going to get bored with their tragedy
0: we're sitting here talking about sending validation and encouragement and energy to these first responders, to these physicians. Physician suicide is a whole nother topic that I haven't really covered much on this podcast. But throughout the country, throughout the world, as physicians, we have our own little mini Hurricane Harveys every day, whether it's the general surgeon that's going into his fifth case of the day at midnight, or the internal medicine doc who's done seeing his 30th patient in the clinic. How can we as physicians outside of big disasters like Hurricane Harvey, how can we reach out to our loved ones, to our peers, to whoever it is, to let them know that I, I need your thoughts, I need your energy?
1: You know, physician suicide is such a, a challenging topic because these are very driven, very introspective people, I think. I think they really, for whatever reason, got, got seduced by the idea of going into medicine and, and tackling that incredible mountain, right? Now, you take that beast and you put them in this crucible like like some of them you know try three times and finally get in or, or maybe they tried once and they they thought that this is what they wanted and then they get there and it's not quite in fact it's entirely not what they wanted and or maybe what they were looking for is now gone because medicine is changing and they don't know how to respond to that change I, I, there's so many possible variables but what i'm saying is is this this beast that comes in this overachieving um, beast that comes in and and finds themselves not quite knowing how to weigh their value or how to measure up to expectations, um, and how to truly feel both worthy of being someone's doctor and also uh, being someone's doctor and colleague. I think something happens in their mind and suddenly they're just not it, they're just not good enough and they're not right and they're too deep and now they're sort of suffocating and they just want release they just want to stop hurting and the problem is is we're not really good about seeing our colleagues drowning um because we too busy taking care of people we think are sick and we think we're healthy so we we think that You know, somehow we're above it, but also we don't, it's the last place you look. You know, you don't look at your um, colleagues that have gotten this far and done so well. I mean, so many times I read or hear stories where they just didn't, it didn't click. They didn't see that this person wanted it so bad or was trying so hard that even though they looked like they were achieving, they felt like they were failing because we, we don't see that part of them. And I think it as a culture in medicine, we need to tell our students and our trainees that we're not looking for you to be perfect. We're not looking for you to... um, that, That there's not this ultimate doctor mold that you're supposed to fit in, okay? There's room for all sorts of kinds of doctoring within doctoring. I mean there might be like a common thread but for the most part your your particular nuances can bring value to the human experience and what we're really trying to teach you is technique, information, and communication skills, and compassion, and leadership. But what we want from you is your genuine and very specific personality. So it's, it's okay you to not be quite like Dr. So-and-so or or do it quite this way. There's no absolute kind of win or fail. And you're growing. You know, it's not like when I started that I was the doctor I was going to become. I'm still in evolution. And part of engaging a patient grows me. I'm becoming, you know, the very doctor that will retire every single day, right? And There's only a short period of time. I mean, I've worked all my life to get there, but then relatively speaking, it's maybe 15 to 30 years that I'm going to be doing this and not that the identity changes, but I'm going to stop kind of really focusing on this at some point. But my point is, is I'm in, I'm out. And in that short period of time, I'm going to evolve as a person, not as just a doctor, but as I evolve as a doctor, that, that seems to beg the fact that I didn't come in whole. And, and if I had thought at any moment that me as a novice was supposed to be good enough, I would have, I would have quit too. I didn't, I didn't. I didn't assume that I was going to be perfect. Now, I say this because I'll tell you. I don't, I don't know how, how to avoid this. It doesn't matter how smart you are or how prepared you are. The day they take the training wheels off and you are on your own, okay, is the the biggest nerve-wracking day. And that day extends into the biggest one to five years of your life where your training wheels are off. And guess what? There's no one else to check off to and there's no one else to validate your thought process and your decision-making. That first patient that you are the attending for is like your first baby, you know, and you're like, oh my God, they just gave me this baby and they gave me no instructions. And every patient after that, until you begin to realize you're, you're kind of needing to fly now. And then you, and then you kind of fly and, you know, you go to your other colleagues who are experienced and if they're worth anything and they're kind hearted and they remember their own fledging flights, they will kind of guide you along. I was very fortunate, but those, those colleagues will tell you, hey, you know, borrowed this, here's some advice. You know, just a gentle pass along, and, and you know, you'll keep your, your growth going. But what I'm talking about is that first moment when you own it all, the decision, the plan, the outcome, the responsibility, the reaction, the interaction, you own it all. There's no one that's going to, like, come in and rescue you, good or bad. Um, that moment didn't come from day one and wasn't going to happen on that day even. That moment was in part of an evolution that takes the entire career. Like, I still get nervous, and I think you're supposed to get nervous. And I still second-guess a lot of the decisions and a lot of the things that I say, and I'll go to my colleagues and, and say, you know, what do you think about this? And we still discuss cases. And until we agree and and figure out what of this way or that way is legitimate. But you have to be someone who's humble that way. And you have to be around people who are allowing you to be humble that way. Because, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, medicine is, is pretty infantile. I mean, we're, we're really just scraping the surface here. We think we're pretty, pretty smart. Um, but in the grand scheme of the universe, you know, we, we're making small dents here. And it's and it's nice for humanity because we really have doubled the lifespan. But um I think you can just see by like articles that come out one year that say, Yes, definitely do this, and then articles that come out three years later that say, <laughs> Actually, no, don't don't do that anymore. And you know, if you're not really capable of being flexible and forgiving yourself and kind of saving face, I, I just tell patients, sorry, three years ago I told you this was okay. Apparently, I, I was wrong. I misgauged it. Now we're going to do something else and go forward. I, I think that a lot of medicine uh, needs to be flexible like that, that we can adapt uh, to more knowledge and, and always mean well and always do well. Um, I think in the long run, though, what we really need to accept when we look at why suicide happens is we're in a culture where we continue to think that doctors are somehow perfect and they're supposed to have been perfect from the very beginning. We're not looking for that. I think if I interviewed someone, I'm looking for potential. And if I hire someone, I'm looking for potential. And if I call someone a colleague, I'm looking at the growth in their potential. And if I retire, I'm looking to see that i fulfilled my potential. So I don't I think if people went into medicine with that understanding globally and with that personal idea, if they got into trouble, they would ask for help. And if they felt pressure, they would maybe rethink. But so much of suicide, to be honest with you, is something deeper and and very it escapes logic. And oftentimes when I talk to people who are left behind after suicide, the only comfort I can provide for them is that whoever committed suicide had reached a point where they were not they weren't rational anymore and so they really weren't making a decision about could they leave and and did they care and who would suffer and it wasn't really telling of of love anymore it was more just how diseased they were
0: as we wrap up here one of the the phrases that stood out to me that you used earlier is the extreme burden of being a physician. For the majority of people that are listening to this right now, they're pre-med students on their journey to hopefully one day be a physician. How do we encourage those that are following in our footsteps to keep on this journey and to figure out if this truly is their calling or if they're just trying to chase a job?
1: I think what uh, some overachievers are or at least maybe were susceptible to doing is hearing that being a doctor was hard and they would go and climb that mountain that, that maybe they re- really weren't gifted that way or called that way, but they just saw the mountain and, and wanted to have achieved. Um, I think nowadays there's so much on the other side of that balance that makes it kind of distasteful that we're even turning off the real noble principled people. Cause they're just, they're really looking for a calling and we're telling them it's a job. Right. So, what I what I want to do, and so many of the doctors that go into doctoring, because it was noble, not just hard. Um, what we want to do is try to inspire those noble people who have gifts, and um, by their nature and by their drive, can walk into a room and accept the challenge and accept, like I said, the extreme burden. In exchange and it's fair trade for the intense and indescribable intimacy of being gifted somebody's vulnerability. I mean, instantaneously, right? So like a confessional patients come in and you get this privilege of asking them anything you want. And of course it's all meant to sort of direct your treatment plan and understanding of their illness, but they got to tell you the truth because they're trying to, Figure out if it's going to be meaningful or helpful, and they just open themselves up. And if they don't, if they resist, you can always turn the key and say, "No, you know, we, I need this information." And um, they're they're looking to, because people are looking for connection, and they and they come back and they come back constantly to try to dig deeper into themselves and the problem uh, from every facet. But what we're really trying to do is to encourage and attract that kind of applicant. It's really scary when someone says to you, help me. And someone says to you, I don't know, do you know? And someone says to you, now what? Okay, these are really scary realities that happen 30 or 100 times every day. Now imagine you're in a a tragedy like Harvey and they really are coming to you saying, now what? I mean, you, you gotta have resources and answers. And then plans on plans and plans on plans and plans for months and years on end. But why, why would that be valuable to you? It's valuable to you because you suddenly get close to something I can't describe. You suddenly get close to what I want to believe is the ethos of medicine. It's human connection, real honest, uh, real vulnerable. And that connection suddenly just, it, it, it tells you about you. So even though it's hard and even though, like I say, it's, it's really can be tiresome and burdensome, but we hope that you will know when to take your time away and, and draw your borders and limitations health for your own health, for your own perpetuation. It just takes one insanely exquisite moment. And you're so glad that you were of that position and profession, because that's the only way that you would have had that moment.
0: All right that is episode 250. I want to thank everybody who called in to read the modern Hippocratic Oath that I used at the beginning of this. Thank you to Dr. Roby for taking the time to talk with me about her writing and about how physicians, in a time of need, lean on other people, how physicians use this time to find support in their community, and how we as the community can support them. So if you are in a situation where you can pick up for a little while and go help, whether it's a day, two days, a week, whatever it can be, go do it. Don't just do it for the application, but do it to support the fellow human in need. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.